when i think about fostering autonomy it comes down to building trust delegating scope and authority and then providing the right guardrails around it welcome to the super managers podcast where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits thought patterns learnings and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader this podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of Fellow.app. Today's guest is Smruti Patel. She's an engineering leader at Stripe, where she leads the latency, efficiency, access, attribution, and performance team, as well as the data platform organization. Prior to Stripe, Smruti led multiple teams at VMware, giving her over 12 years of experience with managing diverse teams. In today's episode, we chat about trust building through clarity and vulnerability, and the importance of how information flows within an organization. Smruti also shares three key factors that influence productivity and a way to check the pulse of your team and overall org performance. Last but not least, Smruti gives insight on how to achieve a culture of constant evolution and how to think in systems. If you found this episode helpful to your leadership journey, let us know by using the hashtag supermanagers on social and giving us a five-star review on the podcast app of your choice. Now, without further ado, here's Smruti Patel on episode 58 of the Supermanagers podcast. Smruti, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aiden. Uh, excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to the conversation. You know, we haven't had anybody uh, from Stripe yet on, on the show. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the, the company. And I, I know you uh, think a lot about uh, systems at Stripe. And I'm very curious to dig in. But before we get into all of that, I know you've been managing diverse teams for the last 12 years You've done a lot of work in quality engineering today. You're head of engineering as part of the lead group, as you mentioned. And uh, I'd love to just start by asking you, in your career, has there been a manager that you remember favorably or, or someone who's been uh, someone you have good memories with? Oh, that's a fun one to kick off. Um, all right. So let me start with a little bit about me before we get into that. So uh, I'm at heart a very independent person, and I always have been. Uh, I grew up in Mumbai uh, and was very fortunate to be raised by parents with two daughters. And they basically taught us that if we worked hard and didn't take any shortcuts to success, the sky was the limit. Um, and I personally loved STEM from the beginning, which was solving puzzles, asking questions, and being curious about the why. So naturally, I got into engineering. Uh, and after my bachelor's degree, I wanted to study further. So I packed my bags, uh, moved to New York, and got a master's in computer science. Uh, then I had a few offers in the financial world from the cities and the Goldman's. But then I came to Palo Alto for an interview with VMware, which back then was at the helm of virtualization. Blue skies, white fluffy clouds, rolling meadows, and even horses. And it felt like a paradise on earth. 
And so I didn't believe it or not, my 20-year-old self decided to move for that. <laughs> and I there I worked on the hypervisor and then the control plane and then the disaster recovery solution. Uh, and by the time I left, uh, we were working on data protection for the cloud. And so over my tenure, I realized that I loved solving ambiguous problems and then driving clarity and delivering results just came naturally. And somehow, for some reason, one consistent thing about each of the managers I had these last two decades was they saw that independent streak in me and each of them gave me that autonomy. Um, and so I'm extremely grateful to each and every one who gave me that space to explore, to stretch myself, to see some potential and basically take a chance on me uh, and let me grow. But my very, very favorite one is someone who said, uh, Smriti, define your job description. Uh, you are wired for results and you'll get them no matter where you go or what you do. And that stuck a chord with me because I've always worked hard and continue to do so. And so often you tend to focus on what could be better or how could I improve about myself? But then you sometimes forget to take a step back and realize, damn, you're the one who now has privilege and choice and consequently a responsibility to sort of pay it forward. Uh, and by this, what I mean is, you know, you don't have to anymore be weighted to, call, to be called upon to effect change or drive impact, but to then lead by example and then create that reality that you want to live in, whether it's for yourself and or those underprivileged around you. So that was the most favorite thing um, or most memorable thing uh, one of the managers said to me. Lots to unpack there. I, I'd love to start with just uh, this concept of uh, defining your own job description. W what does that mean in practicality? Ah, that's a lovely question. I think th this is where self, I think a lot about being self-aware. Um, I, for one, always a straight A student. My career was like you know, one baby step in front of the other kind of thing. Uh, and so... It was in early 30s when I came across this book, Fixed Mindset versus Growth Mindset. And I was like, wow, I have been living all my life with the fixed <laughs> mindset. And, and that's why that book basically revolutionized my life in some ways, I think. Because I said, all right, you know, time to stop playing it safe in some ways. Uh, and the way I think about career progression or shift in role, I think about it in three axes. Uh, one is where you sort of changing the domain you're working on, uh, be it, you know, working in financial payments or working in a different on the healthcare sector. You could still be in tech, but the domain that you're working on for your systems is slightly different. Uh, another axis is the role that you're working in. You could be an engineer or an engineering manager uh, or a pro product manager or a manager of managers. And so the second axis I talk about is the role that you're working in. And lastly is the organization you work in, the social capital you have, the, the systemic culture of the environment you work in. Uh, and so at VMware, where I was there for about 12 years, uh, I worked on changing one of those three axes at every point in time, where I either had a change in role or I changed the product I worked on. Um, and then I came across this book and I said, you know what, it's about time to change some things. As you would expect, if you change one of those three axes, you're likely to be able to leverage some of your strengths and pick up a new area. If you change two out of those three axes, you're likely to have a slightly steeper ramp up. But if you change all three, then you better be ready for a nice, fun, bumpy ride. And so I went from managing managers 
on an infrastructure product at VMware to leading a team which optimized cloud costs uh, in the financial area at Stripe. So I basically changed all my three axes. Uh, and over the last three and a half years, I sort of grew that team uh, into the Leap organization, which focuses on cloud optimization and solving for Stripe's user latency. And I also lead the data infrastructure. So coming back to your question about defining job description, the way I think about it is evaluate where you are in your career, in your life. And if you have the privilege to do so, ask yourself, what brings you joy? Uh, and then what are you optimizing for? Where I'm in my life, I, I want to work with an excellent set of people solving ambiguous problem and with enough autonomy. And I love being at Stripe because it gives me all of that, plus a sense of community and giving back to the world. It's it's very interesting that your your manager, like at that time, uh, was able to, you know, give you that freedom and autonomy. And is that something that I, I wonder how you think about it with with your teams? Is that something that uh, you try to lead with autonomy as well? How does that work for your immediate organization, or how, how do you? I guess, m get more people to follow that way of being? So that's a really fun question. I think when I think about autonomy, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is the sense of intrinsic motivation, which is what makes each of us tick. Um, and that theory of intrinsic motivation basically talks about three things, which is competence, purpose, and autonomy. Now, let's say you've got your perfect team of super diverse uh, team of engineers or managers. And you've also got a good vision and mission established for the team or your org space uh, to see, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so the question I've been thinking a lot about is what does fostering autonomy look like? And what does that look like as your organization scales? What does it look like in a team of six? What does it look like in an organization of 60? And what does it look like in a company of 600 potentially? And so as you scale, uh, and you want to drive that autonomy, it, it starts fundamentally with trust. How are you sort of going about building trust with your immediate team? And once you've sort of focused on building trust, <clears throat> which also involves things like being open, being vulnerable, making sure uh, that you are providing clarity and transparency as you go, the next bit to focus on is how are you then delegating scope and responsibility to the folks on your team such that you can build for sustainability and scalability. And so when I think about fostering autonomy, it comes down to building trust, delegating scope and authority, and then providing the right guardrails around it. Because you can't sort of give someone a problem which is going to stretch them without creating that psychological safety to fail or to, and support them. Uh, and you also want to create those feedback loops, whether it is through feedback by mentoring, by coaching, or by sponsoring. And so once you delegate scope, responsibility, authority, and you make sure you're sort of nurturing that environment where you've sort of set the others up for success, the last bit is um, flow of information. Now, this is something which gets which I'm personally working on as an area to improve, because as you sort of scale your organizations, how your information flows is super critical and that changes as an org scales too. Yeah. So I think about autonomy to summarize, it's a trust delegation and the information flows uh, and both, you know, how, how, how work flows between your teams and orgs. You know, sometimes when I, when I think about trust, 
it's if you i think if you do a good job at hiring the right people for the job then it makes sense to trust them to do you know what it is that they're supposed to do and if you trust them then then of course you can give them the autonomy to let them work on those things so you know how much of this is about in your opinion hiring the right people and uh, and and is it as easy to establish trust if you're not the person that has hired those people to begin with say like you start managing a team that you weren't responsible for hiring but now you get deployed in there and, and then you have to build trust are there any things that you have done or, or things that you would recommend uh, for teams in, in general to build trust so, so that's a really good question and I think the way I think about trust is especially if a new leader comes in, the onus is on you to be able to establish that. And so what does that look like when you get parachuted into a new team? Uh, and the best thing that I have found be more of, most effective is, is listening, right? Be open, be curious, uh, understand what constraints the team's working with, understand what they're optimizing for. Uh, build that sense and mental model by asking a lot of questions. I think one thing uh, which sometimes leaders uh, tend to do is just you know get in there and saying, okay, you know, all this is broken, how do I fix it, right? Uh, but I think it, is, it gets very important to first build the context uh, and hear folks out. So for one of the data infrastructure teams that I recently inherited, uh, a big part of my journey in the first 30, 60 days was just you know, doing that tour uh, with folks on the teams to say, you know, what are you seeing? What's working well? What is not working well? Um, what are things that you would like to work on, but we aren't getting to? What are the reasons behind it? What are we optimizing for? So to me, a big part of driving trust it's not just about hiring. I mean, if you, if you can control that aspect, great. But if you sort of get a team, listen and listen well. And then it once you have done that and you've established your mental model of what is going on with the team, you will also build a sense of the capability um, and the capabilities that the team has. And there, if you're seeing any gaps, the question is, what are what is the support that is provided to them? Is it through mentoring and coaching or is it just a lack of skill set that you can also complement depending on what the team needs. Yeah, so it seems like, I mean, the sense that I'm getting is that you are generally a very systems thinker and uh, you have a lot of thoughts and, and opinions on uh, just thinking and systems in general. So I think like coming from a world of engineering, you know, most things are systems and, and engineering, but I'd love for you to maybe elaborate on why you think people or teams can be thought of as systems as well? Yeah, so this is another book which sort of blew my mind uh, and sort of changed how I was thinking things, right? Um, so typically when we think about high performance or high productivity teams, a nine view is to imagine a bunch of developers sort of burning the midnight oil and just shipping faster or shipping more stuff. Could be there be highly buggy or you could have security loopholes, or maybe it doesn't even serve the user's needs. So in theory, you could have a highly productive team, but does it really serve the purpose? And so over the last two decades, uh, I've worked as an engineer, a manager, and now an org leader. And through this, I've sort of led diverse teams of smart, talented engineers, and then shipped infrastructure, whether it was as product for enterprise customers or as a platform for internal users, like I now do at Stripe. 
And through all of this, the, I think that the two things that have held well uh, for me, one is you know, theory of motivation that I talked about where engineers don't lack motivation. They're here to do their best work. So how do we as leaders then create those environments for engineers to sort of just come together and work their magic? Um, and, and this is where thinking in systems by Donella Meadows really blew my mind. Uh, it essentially what it talks about is how for any system, you want to identify that set of elements, how they interconnect, and then the function or purpose that that system is aiming to serve. So what, if, what this tells us is if you sort of map this to the engineering productivity problem, there's basically more to leading high-performing teams then, then that just goes through the tactical stuff of sprints or agile or story points or OKRs. And so basically nothing works or is grown in isolation. And so then it becomes important and crucial to define what success or high productivity looks like. And so in theory, to me, what has most been consistent across all the high performing teams I've led is three things, like business success. Like what is the precision and impact in terms of what we are building and why? Uh, the second is team level success, which is how well are these set of individuals working together and how effectively are they shipping code with agility or with quality. And lastly, you know, individual success, which is like how engaged or motivated individuals on those teams are and basically how are they growing or stretching themselves. And so when you look at all of this as leaders, you want to create those fertile, inclusive environments. Uh, you want to create that psychological safety that I talked about uh, and have growth mindset to say, you know, can individuals grow given the feedback and mentoring? And to do all that, you have both qualitative or quantitative metrics to help with that. So when I think about the debugging productivity, to me, it isn't about measuring how many commits or how many lines of code an engineer has written. Uh, it comes a lot into you know, what is the environment or the system that they're also working on uh, and what could be better there. Like I'll give you an example for one of our uh, key batch computation systems. We were starting to see this increase in job landing times and we were routinely getting paged. So we said, you know what, Let, let's keep our plant project execution on hold and let's do a four week reliability surge we did that, we diagnosed a bunch of the issues that popped up. And we then also fixed some key bugs in Hadoop upstream. And for the first time in over six months, we actually had five straight weeks of no incidents or no pages. And so if I look back upon that decision, it'd be fairly naive to sort of just evaluate that project sprint points in isolation and view the team as being unproductive during that period. But if you see that technical debt is growing, you will also notice that the number of incidents or your pages or your toil is also increasing. And so when you think about sprint over sprint, if teams are finding it hard to deliver committed work, what I've also noticed is it is important to not get into that downward spiral where engineers can get demotivated. They wanna leave the team, the team gets harder to hire into, and then technical systems get much harder to maintain. So that is where you want to then assess, like, what is the cost benefit analysis of solving it now and sacrificing temporary speed over a longer term increase in that velocity? Yeah, so I'd love to dig in there. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, avoiding getting into a downward spiral and making sure that people don't leave the team. So in your experience, like, what typically are 
things that lead to that downward spiral? And like, how can you solve that with with a system in place? Right. So I think there what becomes important is to say, okay, do you even have a problem on your hands? Um, And one way to assess if you have an engineering velocity problem uh, is like, what markers are you seeing? Uh, Are you seeing your users unhappy with what your team is shipping? Or are you hearing or the organization cut your budget, either a budget in terms of headcount or in terms of uh, promotions, are you not having buy-in? Or are you having regretted attrition where folks are leaving uh, your team? So if you're seeing certain markers, then the thing to figure out is where is the problem and how do you debug it, right? And so to do that, what you want to think about is what is the team working on? So evaluate which of your three phases of software development you're in. Typically, even if you're doing Agile, Uh, you you go through these phases where you're sort of doing some planning, what you're trying to build and why are you building it? And then you are in this execution phase where you're sort of implementing your systems, writing your code, uh, testing things out, rolling it to production. And lastly, the delivery aspect. Uh, By this, what I mean is, you know, what is the marketing or advocacy you have to do to imagine that your impact, to, to see that your impact has truly landed? So when you talk about, you know, what does that downward spiral look like? What you want to talk about is in your regular one-on-ones, what is that sense of engagement and motivation that is coming through from individuals on your team? And and if you start hearing some discontent that, you know, I don't know how my work relates to the business, or if you're hearing one of the engineers is like, you know, um, I'm unhappy about the predictability at which we are, you know, sort of shipping code, like I gave the earlier example where we seeing a sudden surge of incidents and toil. Uh, and so my natural reaction was talk to someone on the team and say, hey, you know, how are you handling this? What, how can I support? What can I do better? Um, and the engineer is like, yes, I'm not sort of getting to do what we committed. Uh, and that can be super demotivating because, you know, here I am, I've committed to these goals. I really want to ship but all this unplanned, unpredictable stuff comes in from the left. Uh, And so the key to do is ask yourself is how do you have a pulse on what is the team doing and how are folks on the team feeling? And then sort of start diagnosing how, where you are that you need to sort of put the pressure on. Sometimes it could also be, you've got multiple, too many cooks in the kitchen kind of situation, in which case you sort of zoom out and say, okay, do we have our, Uh, rules and norms established on how a set of individuals will work together on a project. Uh, For this, I found um, the RACI matrix by Lara Hogan very useful, which talks about who's responsible, who's accountable, who needs to be informed and consulted. Um, And I recently did that when we were working with, where I was the engineering manager, we had a tech lead, we had a technical program manager, and we're like, okay, who's handling what? Let's make sure we draw that Venn diagram of responsibility so we all know who's doing what. And and that was, again, a systemic thing because we realized we were either multiple people doing the same thing or some balls were getting dropped. And so when you come back to how to avoid that downward spiral, you want to see where you are in your software development, where the problem is. And by and large, the problem isn't just one rotten mango. or one rotten fruit, so to speak. Uh, and, and that is something that has been super interesting to see and, and then adopt and evolve in your playbook based on what situation you are in. You said a few things which were interesting. One was the 
uh, you know, do you have a problem? Because sometimes you, you just hear something and if you acted on every little thing that you heard, you'll be in a thousand different directions. So it, it sounds like you're almost going on like this detective quest of you heard something like, I don't know how, say in a one-on-one someone says, I don't know how the work that I'm doing relates to the main mission of the company. Okay. So that's a thing that you heard. And, and, and then I assume you, you go and you dig and you see, is this something that, uh, is happening everywhere, or is it this you know one-off thing that that you heard? Um, I'm curious. How do you? What kind of questions are you asking during the one-on-ones? I think like in an ideal world, you obviously have trust, and people come and tell you everything. <laughs> but we all know that doesn't necessarily happen. So I'm curious. What, what are some questions that you might ask during a one-on-one to get to the heart of the matter and, and some of the feelings? Uh, that you uh, that you uncover. Yeah, I smile, Aiden, because a lot of the one-on-one questions from fellow Avara have been super useful. Oh, cool. I think one of those which I I regularly get interesting questions or uh, interesting responses around is what are you optimizing for? Um, and I think this is especially very um, relevant for senior engineers, you know, staff engineers and above, or senior leaders. Uh, where it becomes important to do that gut check and align to see, you know, what are the constraints and what are the trade-offs that each is sort of facing and what is their response like? Uh, and depending on what responses I get, we sort of say, okay, you know, does this make sense? Is there something else that we want to sort of move, uh, right? You, you typically have a good, fast or cheap kind of thing. Either you can move time out or you can sort of, you know, compromise on quality or you can say, okay, you know what, can we shed scope in some ways? And so one question that I typically go to is, you know, like, what are we optimizing for? Uh, does it still make sense? Um, and in cases where we have these long running projects or initiatives, which we're not singularly leading, but where we have a company-wide impact on or where we need agency, uh, the question around what trade-offs must be made and what do we need to, which assumptions do we need to revisit? Because for long running projects, what I've often noticed is uh, I like to think about it as stepping stones, not milestones, because at every stage, the idea is to shrink that realm of unknown unknowns and get enough data where you can either course correct your 18 month project um, and sort of fix your miscorrections, so to speak. And so they're asking where hey, the assumptions we made six months ago about what we were going to build, does that still hold at this particular point in time? And so the second question that I I lean a lot on is, you know, do our assumptions still hold? And lastly, for engineering managers and senior leaders, uh, this is more to sort of anchor around what your horizon of thought looks like. Uh, The question I try doing is, you know, which of the decisions... Uh, that you've made, which held well and which didn't. Uh, And again, you know, the assumption is I've built enough trust and psychological safety where, you know, folks find the need to sort of answer. And we sort of, this is not a grading exercise. It's more to sort of create your own awareness uh, of, you know, what is that gut go-to call that you're making? Which ones were good? Which ones weren't? And I've also always had the person be positively surprised by uh, sort of, as a moment of self-reflection to look back and say, hmm, I did that well. So it's that moment of self-validation and recognition as well, uh, which typically lands well with that third question. So for me, those are my three sort of go-tos. Hey there, before moving to the next part of the interview, quick interjection to tell you about 
one of the internet's best kept secrets, the Manager TLDR newsletter. So every two weeks, we read the best content out there, the greatest articles, the advice, the case studies, whatever the latest and greatest is, we summarize it and we send it to your inbox. We know you don't have the time to read everything, but because we're doing the work, we'll summarize it and send it to your inbox once every two weeks. And the best news, it's completely free. So go on over to fellow.app slash newsletter and sign up today. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, you know, what are you optimizing for? It makes a lot of sense. And and the other one is when when you're saying that, you know, are the things or the assumptions that were that we we made in the past are they still relevant uh, today? I think that's a really really good question because I think the uh, you know, over the long term, you start doing something or there's a process that you're running, and then you're in in the mode of repetition, and you keep having that meeting or you keep running that process and. Uh, nobody takes a step back to say, hey, does this still make sense? I mean, the world has changed in the last six months. Does it you know, still make sense for us to do things this way? But the other thing that you have talked about is, I like what you, what you said is that, is this just a random you know, rotten mango or <laughs> rotten fruit here? Or is this like something more systematic? And I think it, it's kind of like if you're a doctor and you know, you see a symptom, you can kind of treat the symptom or you can kind of see, is there something systematically going wrong? Um, I'm wondering, is there like, can you think of an example of a situation where maybe you heard of a symptom or, or you, you know, you, you found a problem, but when you dug deeper, it was actually something else that was just causing a lot of problems, but there was like one main root cause, uh, you know, as it relates to systems or teams or, or, or some sort of structure in that way? Yes, uh, I think one comes to mind. Um, so, so this was back in the day where there was this, dif- there are different roles between development and QE engineers. Uh, and one of the symptoms we were observing was the career growth for QE engineers there wasn't much of a trajectory past staff engineers. So the track there was staff engineers, you know, principal engineers, and sort of ended at principal. And then I think you became a fellow. Um, and the career trajectory for senior QE engineers uh, was harder to chart out or drive a narrative around. Um, so, so one of the symptoms was we were not seeing enough senior engineers, senior QE engineers um, in the organization. Uh, another symptom that used to consistently come up was, hey, you know, the quality of our testing, the quality of our test automation isn't where we'd like it to be. Um, and so when I dug deeper into that, some of my analysis, uh, talking to folks, talking to senior leaders, was around like, what is the system or the environment we've created in terms of career progression for this set of engineers where we have certain expectations, but that mobility does not exist. Uh, and as a result, what we were seeing was either attrition at the senior levels or a migration from QE roles transitioning to either engineering managers or development engineers. And we said, hmm, the, the reason, the effect we're seeing is not enough senior QE engineers. Uh, is it due to 
folks leaving the system for different needs or is it that we have not created a good enough progression story where the scope of influence and impact really exists uh, and so it wasn't a case of like person x is not the right qe engineer for this automation plan and hence testing sucks and hence the product quality sucks right because if you pull on that thread a naive view is to just say okay you know engineer x is not doing what they need to um just all of qe is not where we need it to be and hence the product quality isn't where we like it to be. Um, and so when you dig on that, there's clearly different systems at play. Here, the system that was at play is, you know, what was your career framework uh, for your senior QE engineers? And did they have the right support? Did they have the mentorship? Did they have the coaching? Uh, and did they see the recognition and validation from the system to see that that progression existed for them, where it was a compelling career path? And had we done enough of that to actually support those folks through it? Because let's assume you fix that and you could have a principal QE engineer who started designing the product quality for all the organization. What does a world like that look, look like? And then do you now have more top of line funnel for folks who's like, you know, I'm going to be that person up there who can sort of determine what product quality and user experience looks like. So I think that is one example that comes to mind when I say, you know, a naive view could have just been to sort of single one engineer there and say, hey, person X could be so much better. Let's bring person Y. But then what is your Y story to get to seniority or increase the scope of influence and impact they can have? Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a really hard problem to solve um, in, in the sense of like, it, you, you know, you see something like, say, product, product quality or quality testing is not where it should be. And to come up with, with an answer of we need to create room for more career mobility so people can become more senior or that like the number of senior uh, QA engineers that we have is declining and uh, and to be able to diagnose that that must like how hard was that actually to diagnose and get to that and was it like a you you know you just thought about it and you came up with the answer or was was there a process involved in, in getting to that solution? That is again a very good question. I think while in the moment I didn't know I had a process, <laughs> I think for me it came down to that openness and honesty to say, you know what, I'm not going to make a decision based on one conversation from someone who said, okay, here is the problem and sort of just react to that. Uh, I think uh, this is where, you know, my inherent inquisity comes in, which is like, what else is going on under the hood? And so when you sort of pull on that thread, be open to where it takes you and be able to at least check your premises that you are making or the assumptions you're making and sort of open yourself up to the narrative that forms. And I think this is where I tie it back to that thinking in systems, which is it isn't about one problem being bad as in itself, but it's about you know, what else is happening in the environment that's either incentivizing or disincentivizing certain behaviors. And as organization leaders, that is what you want to sort of focus on, where you're sort of scaling your processes, scaling your systems and diagnosing the right problem, ideally upstream and not sort of just sort of solving for the effect in one isolated case. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that Stripe doesn't have this problem, but I can imagine, you know, if I take the same problem that you just stated and say I applied it for uh, if if we had if we didn't have say at a company a career ladder or career pro, pro, um, 
I guess, a career progression for engineers as individual contributors, then you would start to see, hey, a lot of our senior engineers are disappearing and all becoming managers. And uh, maybe they're not so great at management, actually. And maybe they should have really stayed there. And so I think this this makes a lot of sense and, and the lessons apply uh, to many other places. But I think you have a you have a lot of thoughts around that decision to become a manager and uh, that transition as well. Um, in your experience, like from the people that you have promoted to, you know, from being an individual contributor to manager, what are things that you've kind of looked at to, to know that that's a good decision to make? So this, so it, it comes down to some of the mistakes that I have made in the past. Uh, I think, some of the mistakes which I made when I transitioned from IC to manager was this misplaced sense of having more power or authority over product strategy. That was the main reason when I decided to switch from IC to EM. The reason I stayed was, you know, very early on, I enjoyed seeing people grow uh, through the feedback or the conversations I'd had with them. And so one thing that has stuck with me is it, it comes down to people, the people that you're working with, the people that you uh, who report to you, the people whom you report into. Uh, and so to me, when I talk to folks who are thinking about moving from IC to management, uh, the one thing I ask folks to think about is how much do you enjoy working through others where your influence and impact is not tied to the code that you're writing or the design you're building up, uh, but in lot because of the people you're working with and how you affect what decisions they make and how you set them up for success. Uh, so when you realize that that is the aspect of engineering that gives you joy, which is bringing together a set of other people to do the work that you'd be excited and for the outcomes you want to see, then that is the moment when it is useful to consider being a manager. And ideally, you know, you brought about it too, brought up to in earlier, which was in an ideal engineering system, you do have individual tracks where you're not being forced to move from IC to management just because that is the only way to sort of level up in some ways, right? Ideally, you have two distinct career tracks, the engineering track, which goes all the way up, and there is parity with the engineering management track such that, you know, they are peers uh, at the higher levels. And assuming that that exists, the transition from IC to EM, I ask folks to think a lot about uh, how much they enjoy working with others and seeing their impact come through others. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a very, very good point. And I, I often hear that when people start to become engineers, uh, sorry, engineering managers, it starts to become difficult because you're so used to building things and seeing the things that you built and feeling good after seeing those things. And then it changes, right? Like the type of work you produce changes. I'm very curious. So, you know, when you, so, at, you know, what you're doing today at Stripe and now that you have, say, multiple levels and multiple teams and uh, have, having that kind of a hierarchy, how does that change, like, the more you go up in an organization? So from, like, you know, first-line manager, when you go past that point, like, what is the feedback that you get that makes you think that I'm doing a good job at this? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. I think it gets harder and harder to sort of keep that pulse or get that honest feedback. So for me, one thing I look out for is uh, at Stripe, we do this thing called Stripe Sat, which is every six months we do this engagement survey to see how folks on the team are feeling, how do they think about the environment they're working in, how connected they are, you know, what, deci- what decisions are being made. Uh, their focused uh, conversations, even around their productivity, around their manager. So for me, a big source of feedback is that uh, anonymized, aggregated information, which then sort of determines how is my org really performing and how do we take this data and sort of form a game plan where you don't have to solve, you know, solve for world hunger kind of thing, but, you know, pick one or two things and come up with an actionable plan on something to improve. Uh, Like this cycle, there's something that I want to do a better job of, which is create that space for learning and development where you know, and this this is true, especially in like rapidly scaling organizations where there are more problems to solve than people to solve it. And so for existing people, it gets important to give them the space to be able to also learn and grow. Uh, and that learning can come in different forms. You can either learn on the job while you sort of you know, stretching yourself or stretching your skills, or it could come through, you know, stepping out or it could come through you know conferences and providing a budget and things like that uh, and stripe is phenomenal about sort of making sure that we have a flavor of each of these for folks on the team uh, and so one thing that i'm consciously going to do is see how we're doing in terms of learning and development for folks on the team uh, a couple other ways to sort of keep that pulse is regular one-on-ones i do skip levels monthly skip levels with you know a set of randomized folks from the org to get a pulse again on like you know what are things that are going well, what are decisions we're doing well, how strategic are we about the future. Um, and lastly, um, all hands, monthly all hands to get a sense of, you know, where are we, where are we headed? Uh, what are our priorities in the coming quarter, coming half? And so between those, you know, try getting, developing the feedback loops to try driving clarity. Uh, one thing I've realized is, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat is the mantra of leadership. So you want to be saying it enough number of times, uh, especially as you want to set a culture of that constant evolution, learning development, and creating that inclusivity. So uh, I think putting the information out at least along three different channels and making sure it comes back to you and you have that pulse on what's going well and isn't is super crucial. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I agree with the repeat, repeat, repeat and uh, and waiting to see if what you are saying eventually comes back at you too. That's always, that's, that's always awesome. Um, uh, Smurti, this has been uh, really fun. So many great insights and, and, and takeaways. One question that we ask all of our guests is for all the managers and leaders looking to get better at their craft. Are there any uh, final uh, tips, tricks, resources, or words of wisdom that you'd like to leave them with? I'd say the heart of all of it is people. Uh, Camille Fournier has written a really good article about managing up, down, and across. Highly recommend reading it. And so being able to build relationships and foster trust and provide that ongoing feedback to whether your peers, your leaders, uh, with radical candor and kindness is super crucial. For new managers, I'd say, you know, management is not a promotion, at least not in well-designed 
engineering systems. Uh, it is a shift in role, so please avoid the new manager debt spiral. And for seasoned leaders who are navigating orgs and trying to drive that influence and impact through abstraction, I'd say thinking in systems uh, is my personal favorite, which I which I can't talk enough about. Um, and at the meta level, growth mindset changed my life too, in terms of you know bringing our own attitude toward self awareness, reflection, and learning. And just to end it all, I'll say for everyone out there, engineering leadership is a lot about dealing with ambiguity, living with constraints, and being adaptable, flexible, and resilient. And Aiden, like you said earlier today, it's both a science, but more an art, and it starts with you. So please be self-aware, adapt, and evolve. And that's a great place to end it. Smruti, thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app/supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.